So neat to see that, isn't it? Uh, grateful for each of those who have been reading Scripture for us in this series. Uh, welcome. By the way, my apologies for those of you who had a hard time in the parking lot when there's snow, and it's just Sunday mornings are already a little bit crazy, but thank you for braving the elements and being uh, here today. I want to talk today from the Scripture about masterpieces of God, masterpieces of God. Maybe you got notes on your way in. You can also get them on your phone. Follow along the scriptures we're going to read. Let me start, though, by telling when Mary and I, over the Christmas break, we had two of our five kids home, and, and so uh, we took them to, we did some iconic Cleveland things, Westside Market, you know, some other, we went to, and we went to Cleveland Museum of Art. It's a great spot, isn't it? That you have that expansive space you see there, and it's just beautiful. It's free. I, I love the Impressionist works. It's my favorite section, but there's a lot of other quality exhibits. Uh, it almost turned into a really uh, tough time a couple years ago when I was there with Mary because we're looking at some, <laughs> some of the paintings, and Mary got her finger within about five inches of a painting. The museum, one of the staff came over. They arrested her, put her in prison for, no, not quite. But that's the thing that normally happens to me, and she's going, Jonathan. But the funnier part was when it happened the second time, and I'm like, wow, my, you know, there she is. Uh, um, do you know what the most expensive piece of art ever sold for? It was seven years ago, and it was this painting right here, the Salvatore Mundi. How much would you pay for that? Uh, the price of that painting was $450 million. Don't forget that, 300000 <laughs> 450 Point three million. The same, about the same price that it cost to launch the space shuttle or to buy 450,000 iPhones, one for everybody in uh, Cleveland. That is a lot of money, right? But here's what I want you to do. Would you look at the person nearest you and just tell them, say, you are worth way more than that masterpiece. Would you tell them that? You are worth way more than that masterpiece. And to those of you engaging in line, welcome to you as well. I want to tell you, if you're watching by yourself, you are worth way more than that masterpiece. And I say that on the authority of God's Word. When we read this in Ephesians chapter 2, we are God's what? Masterpiece. I mean, the Scripture says that. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things He planned for us long ago. If you guys want to leave that verse up just for a second there. Here's what it says. You're his masterpiece, and when you put your faith in Christ, says he creates us what? He creates us anew. So even when we've defaced you know, who we are, our person, by some decisions we've made, things like that, when, when God, when he welcomes us back, when we come to him, his grace just comes and makes us anew. Thanks for having that up there. That's what it says, right? But here's what we often do. We believe the lies about about that we hear from others, maybe from someone who is a significant person in our life, and we think that we question our worth. We feel insecure. Maybe you look in the mirror and, and, with, and, and you wish you were something different. You think, if only this one thing about me would change. And we question how we've been made. And God's perspective is this. I want you to hear it. He looks at you, and you are God's masterpiece. 
You have incredible value to him. You are worth way more than that piece of art up there. The first chapter of the Bible makes it clear that humans are the climax of God's creation. We're set apart from animal life, even that in itself. That, that, that's the scriptures. You are worth way more than any animal. You are even higher than the angels, the Bible says. You are God's masterpiece. And friends, that has a huge influence, not only on the way that we see ourselves, the person in the mirror, but the way that we see others, the way that we treat them. At least it should, their value, their dignity, because they are masterpieces as well. That's a theme all the way through the scripture. Let's turn to our passage for today, Psalm 139. Psalm 139, we're in part three of the series called Near. Near expresses God's heart for us, that, that he wants to be in relationship with us. And so you and I are invited to put our trust in Jesus, what he's done for us. When he went to the cross, he took the penalty for all that we've done wrong, our shame. And, and then, he, he, you know, here he is, this, the God who is and who was and who is to come, and he invites us into his family. And, and I, I hope you've accepted his invitation. But even if you haven't, I'm really glad you're here, glad you're tuning in uh, and investigating uh, the claims of Jesus and what he says about life and about us. By the way, I want to give a shout out to our, uh, those who are engaging in our online community from all over different places and to our brothers at Lorraine Correctional. Uh, several more got baptized last week and we just wanna say we are so glad to have you as part of the family and uh, love you guys. And, and, and some of you have been able to come and, and be here when you've been uh, released, and we look forward to seeing more of you. And, uh, but I know some of you are going to different places around Ohio or the nation, but uh, welcome. Really glad to have you. When we come to the Lord, he places us into a family, this growing global family that is going to be not just for here, but forever. He takes wounded and broken people like me and he says, Jonathan, I'm not only forgiving you, I'm adopting you. And he adopts me to be his son or you to be his daughter. Like he, he wants you to be in his family. You are a masterpiece of God. Friends, when we really grasp that, it, it changes our outlook on life. It changes the way that we live, the way we relate. So here's the question, how does God really see you? Like how, how, does he, how does he see you from the time that you were just an idea or a, a little conceived, you know, so small, microscopic? Psalm 139, we're picking this up, verse 13, and here's what we read. Lord, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. The psalmist wants to be clear. The Lord, the Lord is the one who designed you. You are not just the product of two people who came together. You are a design of Almighty God. Do you believe that? He saw you. He saw you being formed. And you're a work of art by the Lord of all creation. 
He knit you together. I mean, that word there in, in Hebrew, the language of the Old Testament, means you're handcrafted by God with unique abilities and strengths, weaknesses, so that we recognize our need for other people with gifts to make a difference. He didn't just make the universe. He made you. He made you. Colossians chapter 1 says every, God created everything. Everything, including you, was made through him and for him. When you are made by the master artist, that just, you're worth, you are worth way more than $450 million. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Weight of Glory, says this, the dullest and most uninteresting person, who comes to mind for you? I shouldn't, I shouldn't even say that. The dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. There are no ordinary people. There are no ordinary people. Just say that aloud with me. There are no ordinary people. The person sitting next to you today, you, you are a masterpiece of God. Psalmist continues in verse 14. He says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. That, that last little phrase, or depths of the earth, is simply a metaphor for the hiddenness of the womb. It's a poetic way of describing the dark and mysterious place that was invisible to them. Like they didn't have like ultrasound and all the rest. And so they're like, the depths of, like it just is, it doesn't mean that they were somehow created inside the planet, but, but that it was a, a hidden place. But they say, even then, God, you saw and you created with such incredible precision. What does it mean to be fearfully and wonderfully made? The Hebrew word um, there is pela, for, which just reinforces the, the notion of our individual craftsmanship and purpose. In other words, you're not, you're not like on some kind of assembly line kind of deal where God's like, yeah, they're all... No, you... He had you specifically in mind when you came to be. You're beautiful. You're finely tuned. When it talks about fearfully, it, it doesn't mean you're scared. You just take the letters of that word scared and just turn them, and it's really more of a sacred. Sacred. You're almost in awe. You know, you, you watch the sunset over the Grand Tetons, or some kind of mountain range. And you're like, wow, that's amazing. Or up at Lakeside Park. Anybody been there? Everyone claps and the sun goes down over the lake, you know, and you just go, wow. Or you, you, you're in a cathedral that just sort of awe-inspiring. Or maybe you're holding a newborn in your arms and you look and you go, wow, this is amazing, right? Fearfully, wonderfully made. It's sort of this incredible design all of which ex just reflects the Lord's expansive intelligence and wisdom and creativity. Can I share a few of my favorite facts about the masterpiece that you are, the person next to you, every single person that God weaves and knits together, fearfully and wonderfully made? You know what the fastest muscle in your body is? This right here. It's sort of scary, isn't it? Uh, your eye. 
your eyes capable of contracting in less than one hundredth of a second. It's why we say about something that happens fast, we say it happened in the blink of an eye, right? Your eyes are so powerful, get this, your eyes are so powerful that the light of a candle, your eye can see from 1.7 miles away. How about your pinky finger? Sometimes big things come in small packages, right? Did you know how vital your pinky is? Without your pinky finger, you would lose about 50% of your hand strength. Every single part, valuable. How about your cardiovascular system? Did you know that your body produces, your bone marrow produces, over 2 million red blood cells every second? That's, you can go and Google that later. Every second, 2 million red blood cells your body's pumping out. Your heart beats 2 billion times in a lifetime, pumping your blood through over 100,000 miles of blood vessels inside your body. Th th think about that. You take all of the arteries, veins, capillaries, everything, stretch them out. They would go around the planet four times, just your body, fearfully and wonderfully made, right? Thinking about cells, there are 200 different types of cells in your body. Stem cells, bone cells, muscle cells. For me, a lot of fat cells, you know. Each cell remarkable in its own miniaturized way with electric fields and protein factories and little motors, you know. And How about your ear? The smallest bones in your body are inside your ear. Do you know that? In fact, they're so small they could fit on top of a penny. But without them, you wouldn't be able to hear a thing. And your ear is self-cleaning because of one thing. You can guess what it is, that what you might think is nasty earwax is actually a protective measure against, against a bacteria hurting your ear. How about this one? Did you know that in an average lifetime, a single person produces enough saliva to fill two of those right there. <laughs> Some of you going, that's nothing. I know a guy probably fills one of those every month. Uh, <laughs> he's always hawking, you know, he's, he's just. <laughs> like baseball players up to bat, right? Friends, God is the master artist creating, knitting, forming, the psalmist says. He's, he's always seen us, even when we were just this little bunch of cells that began to create, God knew us and saw us. And verse 14, one translation says, God, your workmanship is marvelous. The psalmist doesn't stop there, though. It's not only that God knows about your past and he saw you when you were being formed inside your mom and he loved you even then, but that today, verse 16 says this, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me, all the days ahead were written in your book before one of them came to be. Here's what's being said about God's knowledge of your life. The Lord knows your future as well as he knows your past. He sees what no one else can see into the future. That's why you go, why would you do life without him? As one friend put it, your diary is already on God's shelf before your life even began. Does that sort of blow your mind? Friends, when we ponder this and we grasp how the Lord sees us, you just go, 
wow, God, if that really is true, and you might question whether you believe this, but how does your life have value apart from seeing a divine signature on who you are, made in Imago Dei, the image of God? So the question is, how shall we then live? Like, what, what, what does this mean for us? Isn't that the question to ask if you're God's masterpiece and, and if your neighbor is God's masterpiece and the person who works in the cubicle next to you or on the line or a fellow student or your, anybody, every person with whom you lock eyes, how shall we then live? We start here with worship. Not worshiping our body, but worshiping the artist himself. This is what the psalmist does. He says in verse 14, God, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Can we just join in worship together? And let's say that aloud, the white uh, words there on the screen. Can we say it together? Ready? I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Some of you need to look in the mirror later today and say that again. Not praising yourself, but saying, God, I want to praise you. Because our human nature is to do what? We often don't like ourselves. It's sort of like getting a gift from somebody, you know, last month, and they go, well, I don't really like the color. I mean, it's, I don't know what you were thinking when you got this for me, and, you know, and whatever. Um, if I do that with, to God with the gift that he's given me, and, I, and God, I, I praise you. Whatever I like or maybe don't like about myself, God, I'm, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, and the psalmist starts with praise. God, I, I give you praise. We can also say this, not only worship, but surrender. Honor Jesus with your whole person. Some of you know the verse in Romans chapter 12 where it says this. In light of everything God has done, his mercy, the fact that Jesus went to the cross for you, he gave his life for you. The, the author says, so present your what? Your, your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, like he, we owe our lives to him. In fact, here's what we read in 1 Corinthians 6. Don't you realize your body, if you've given your life to Christ, is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God. You do not belong to yourself. You do not belong to yourself. For God bought you with the high price, so you must honor God with your body. So he didn't only make us, he redeemed us. That's what Paul says here. You're bought with the price. And so there's all kinds of implications here, but essentially we say, Lord, I want my body, I want my whole self to be used for your purposes. I want to honor you with the way I care for this body, the way, because God comes and he makes his home within us. John chapter 14, Jesus says this, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. That's how you really love God. You obey him. You follow his word. My father will love them and we will come to them and make our what? Our home with them. That's how close God is. He comes and he inhabits us. Surrender. Protect is the next word here. Recognize the value that God places on every person. Every single person matters to him a lot. Every single person. Every person bears the divine signature. And when we really see that, even if we go, God, but this person is so difficult. Made in the image of God, they're a masterpiece. Maybe defaced by other people's abuse. Maybe by some of their own decisions. 
They're still a masterpiece. And so Proverbs 31 says this, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. In other words, when it's within your power, your influence to make an impact, to speak up for those whose rights are being denied, you do it because they're masterpieces of God. John Orberg in his book, Who Is This Man?, talks about the dignity gap that has often existed because of the brokenness of our world, that there's always this lure to, to give more value to some people than to others. And he gives some examples. If you're looking at your notes, you'll see this here. And here's one example. The world's faulty value system uh, back in 350 B.C., around that time with Aristotle, he wrote that inequality was the natural order of things. Here's what he said. From our the hour of their birth, some are marked out for subjection and others for rule. It's terrible, isn't it? Totally contrary to what the Scriptures say, the, the value that Jesus places on every person, that from the very first chapter, God says, let us make them in our what? Image. Like we bear the, the image of God. He's made us and we have cr- tremendous value. But the world's faulty value system has so often persisted. In the first century, there was this hierarchical way of of ordering life. And at the top were the gods, and most cultures had numerous gods, and and below the gods was the king. And then you had the officials of his court and the priests and then who reported the king. And below them were then the the artisans and the merchants and the, the craftspeople. And below them were, you know, those who came in last, a large group of peasants and slaves. So the king was seen as being like in the image of God or almost semi-divine. And then you had the rest of people, the rest of the human race, so you had this huge dignity gap. And, and peasants and slaves over here were not considered to be made in the image of God, and so they could be treated with, with abuse. And then Jesus comes on the scene, and what does he do? He gives great value to children and to lepers and to non-Jewish people and, and to the blind and the lame and the poor, to everyone. And it took hold to the extent that in the family of Jesus, when they got it right, you have someone like the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3 who says this, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, yet all are one, what? In Christ, that everyone has, there's no dignity gap in the family of God. Every person is a masterpiece. Every person has great value to him. Imagine what that did to the hearts of people who were considered to be way down the rungs of the ladder and they go, wow, he sees me. He values me. He went to the cross for me. Sadly, nations uh, with Christian underpinnings such as our own have sometimes gotten miserably wrong. In 1857, the Supreme Court uh, handed down the Dred Scott decision declaring that a runaway slave... uh, was seen as property. The people of African descent, whether slave or free, were not protected by the U.S. Constitution and were not U.S. citizens. It was a horrible decision. And it has lasting significance, widely regarded as the worst decision ever made by the Supreme Court. A hundred years later, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., whose birthday we celebrated this past Monday, uh, in the spirit of Jesus' teaching, declared there are no gradations in the image of God. In other words, there's, there's, not, there's no hierarchy. Every person is a masterpiece. Every person is loved by God. Sadly, our Supreme Court, I believe, 
based on the scriptures, got it wrong again in 1973, the year of the disastrous Roe v. Wade decision, which declared essentially that the life of an unborn child, and you can't say it's anything else when you see the imagery and you say that the life of an unborn child could be ended by another person. You might call it another worst decision ever that a, another group of men once again got it miserably wrong. What do the scriptures teach? The scriptures teach that every person is made in the image of God, that he formed, he knit together, even in the mother's what? Womb. He says, before you were born, God tells Jeremiah, before you were born, I knew you. I set you apart. So what can we do today? Can I, can I just say this? I'm going to probably get a couple emails and someone goes, you got political today. This isn't about politics. This is not partisan. This is about saying, God, we want to see people the way you see them. I want to honor every single person as a treasure. No matter how damaged by life or by sin or by situations, or simply someone who's so different from me that I'm hard-pressed to identify with them. God, I want to see them as a treasure. I want to see them the way you do. Every age from conception to the end of life, every nationality, every, every political party, every ethnicity, no matter what football team they root for, right? They're still made in the image of God. So what do we do? Proverbs 31 says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, defend the rights of the poor and needy. In other words, when other people are tempted to give a hierarchy of value, we say, no, 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 no. Every person made in the image of God, they're a masterpiece. Friends, when we do that, when we have the heart of God and we treasure people and value them like he does, the impact can be huge. Let me close with this. True story. John and Denise Knight were happily uh, anticipating the birth of their firstborn. They were told as a little boy, and they decided to name him Paul. When Paul was born, they quickly were confronted with the fact that, that he had major physical challenges. Uh, Paul was born without eyes. John and Denise would later discover that their son had other serious issues, including serious autism and uh, growth hormone deficiency. Two months after Paul's birth, as John was looking at his son in the hospital, hooked up to all kinds of tubes and wires and sensors and surrounded by medical professionals, he quietly told God, God, you are strong, that's true, and you are wicked. You are mean. Do it to me, but not to this boy. What did he ever do to you? And shortly after that prayer, John and Denise quit going to church. But one couple from their church refused to give up on them. Carl and Gerilyn never pressured John and Denise on spiritual issues. Instead, they would just often stop by. They'd drop off a loaf of freshly baked bread. They would bring by a little bag with soaps and shampoo and just trying to show kindness. John said it was like Carl and Gerilyn were saying, we notice you. We see you, we know you're hurting, and we love you. Eventually, John and Denise accepted a dinner invitation over to Carl and Geraldine's home, and during dinner, John told Carl, he said, you can believe whatever you want, I don't care, I have evidence that God is cruel. Carl softly replied, John, 
I love you. I have regard for you, and I want you to know I love your boy. Carl and Geraldine's four children also displayed unconditional love for little Paul. John described it this way. He said, they throw my son up in the air and make him laugh and do funny bird sounds. And, and that was confounding to me because most people, most adults couldn't do that. And so I'd, I would have this extraordinary expression of love and affection at the dinner table and I would turn to my left and there would be at least one of these children playing with my son Paul like he was a real boy. Based on this family's quiet, persistent love, John and Denise said that was the ticket to them returning to the Lord and then coming back to their local church. And when they returned, Carl and Geraldine were right at their side, making sure that their son made it into the nursery, that they weren't alone. And John would later say, my friends Carl and Geraldine persisted. That was a big deal. They persisted and they loved us. They saw Paul, that little boy, as a masterpiece, knit together by a father who has put great value on every single person's life. Just to be sure we really grasp that today, would you turn to the person nearest you and tell them again, you are a masterpiece of God. Would you tell them that? You are a masterpiece of God. Would you pray with me? And I want to invite you to make these words your own. Father God, thank you for creating me to be me. Your creation is good and beautiful, and I'm a part of that. You didn't make a mistake when you made me. You didn't make a mistake when you created the people around me. Lord, please help me to know deep in my heart that I am precious and loved and help me to hear those around, to see those around me, to treat those around me like treasures as well. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. amen. You know, as we sing this next song, if there's someone you say, God, I, I, I just want to thank you for the masterpiece there. I want to commit them to you. If it helps to come to kneel here at the front, or you just want to affirm for yourself, God, I haven't always seen myself the way you see me. And I just want to say today, God, I, I surrender myself. You're welcome to come here to the front just to pray quietly as we sing. Team's going to lead us. Let's stand together and speak Jesus over everybody around us.